I'm alive. I'm so very, very alive. I'm alive. It's alive. I'm supposed to smile for the thumbnail. I hope I smile. I hope I smiled for the thumbnail. I hope I did that. Okay. I hope I got it all going. All right. Right about now, Funk Soul Brothers. Check it out now, Funk Soul Brothers. Right about now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Living on a Thin Line. YouTubers, you came on just a few seconds late. Welcome to Living on a Thin Line. Uh, my name is Tony Visick. This is your daily diversion from all the anxiety, weirdness, and hoopla going on in the world today. Uh, we do this every day at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We do it on Facebook Live on my personal page, Tony Visick, the I-C-I-C-H. We do it on YouTube on the uh, Comedy Schools channel, and we do it on Comedy Schools Radio Network.com. So, uh, comedy, yeah, Comedy Schools Radio Network.com. So, uh, three ways to access a show that is built around three things. It's built around interaction with you, conversations that we can have uh, when you post things on YouTube or on Facebook. Hello, Tina and Mike Lawson. Uh, uh, also, if you post them on Comedy Schools Radio Network.com uh, or here on Facebook, we can interact. Uh, also, it's uh, built around. Um, it is built around uh, some knickknack or some little memento that I have laying around here in the home office to ComedySchools.com here in Maricopa, Arizona, where I share it with you. Uh, maybe it's something I had autographed. Maybe it's some silly uh, trinket and try to uh, weave a story around it that we could talk about. And I recommend two artists or two pieces of music based on my vast, and it's vast, uh, vinyl album collection. So that's what we do today. Hello, Diane Howell. Hello, Jerry Visick. Uh, hello, Angela Fox. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, so many people say hi to him. Loser Kelly Wilson. Uh, more and more joining here as we speak. Um, today is uh, Wednesday. It is Wednesday in America. Uh, we are here on the outskirts of the desert where things are relatively calm. And I hope wherever you are, if you were someplace where they weren't relatively calm, I hope they're calming down. Um, I don't really do a lot of politics on this particular show, and people that know me know that I am uh, pretty uh, politically oriented, or at least interested. Let me put it this way. I got a guess. Go ahead. Stick your head in. Stick your head in. Come here. Come here. All right. There. All right. Come on. There we go. <laughs> That's my grandson, Sullivan. Uh, which brings up my where do you put your risk uh, uh, factor today? Where do you put your risk? Um, I thought that all the people that were howling... I thought all the people that were howling about um, opening businesses and running the state capitals, carrying guns and wearing camo and people screaming about masks, I thought they were all pretty silly and pretty misinformed. And I thought that they were going to, uh, I thought they were going to uh, prolong the crisis by uh, keeping the numbers up. And I thought, well, those are the silly people in America. Then I watched what happened this week. Now, keep in mind, it's separate from the issue, okay? But I watched tens of thousands of people who just a week or two before, a week or two before, were quarantining, doing social distancing, wearing masks, and, of course, castigating, that means putting down, anyone who didn't, gathering in mass in streets throughout the country, which will keep the numbers up. Unless... By some miracle, the virus is beginning to weaken and slow down. So basically, whether you're on the right or the left, at some point, at some point, 
because your feet weren't actually on fire, you decided to uh, take a greater risk than you had been taking previously. So that brings me to my point of where do you put your risk? So where have I put my risk? I, uh, uh, my heart goes out to the family of uh, uh, the man who was uh, murdered in Minneapolis. I believe that everybody involved, uh, uh, the individuals that were involved, uh, should be charged with the strongest charges possible. Then again, I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not an attorney. I don't know how it all works. But I do believe that. And I believe they will be. And I believe that uh, America's voices needed to be heard about the injustices that go on continuously every day in America. I just don't know if running out into the street in the tens of thousands and then therefore risking the possibility that the coronavirus could come back bigger and stronger was the best way to do it. And then there were two groups. Let's be honest, there's been two groups. Uh, basically, everyone in America joined in in agreement that uh, uh, this was a uh, murder and that uh, justice had to prevail. And almost everybody in America agreed that uh, American Jewish jurisprudence and a lot of the way society functions needs to be reexamined. Everybody agrees with that. Everybody. And the people that were out marching, even though I'm going, wow, you know, these were the same people a couple weeks ago going, why aren't you wearing a mask? I can't believe all those people are out protesting. They were out protesting. So there were people marching and then there were people burning. People marching and people burning. Some people said they understood the people that were burning and looting. But I know people whose restaurants and businesses were ransacked and looted Okay, who at one point in your life had nothing, had zero, had zilch, and worked their way up to be able to have just a little small space somewhere that they could run a business out of and eat out of. And it got burnt and looted. So my, my advice, I'm not going to say I'm against burning and looting. I'm not going to say it. But here's what I'm going to say. If you get a burn and loot, burn and loot your own shit. Listen. If all you got in your house is uh, a couple of T-shirts and a Pop-Tart, run out the street and set it on fire. Set your own stuff on fire. The stuff you personally own. Don't set some other guy's stuff on fire. Don't burn up some other guy's stuff. Burn up your own car. Now you're making a point. Now we're going, damn, we need to listen to that guy. That guy just set fire to his own car. He just destroyed his own Pop-Tart. He just took his own $200 laptop and smashed it out in the middle of the street, protesting the injustice in America. Burn your own shit. You know, in the 1960s in uh, Vietnam, there was a, a Buddhist monk, and I think there was more than one case of this, where in order to protest the violence that was going on in their country in Vietnam, set themselves on fire. The monk set himself on fire. It's one of the most iconic and disturbing pictures in the history of photography and in the history of the Vietnam conflict. That's what that guy did to point out injustice. So you got one guy, a Buddhist monk, who through his religious belief and faith that wanted to point out what he thought was the horror of the injustice being, being rained down upon his nation, who decided to take matters in his own hands and personally self-immolate and then you got guys who are going, hey, you know what? Uh, let's break into a footlocker, steal all the shoes, and sit on fire. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, uh, normally I don't get uh, um, 
I'm not even worked up. I'm just saying what makes sense. What makes sense? Okay. A couple things to tell you about before we move forward. Uh, if you're interested in doing stand-up comedy, and uh, who isn't interested in doing stand-up comedy? All right? Because there's nothing else to do right now. If you're interested in doing stand-up comedy, uh, I got two ways for you to start. Uh, you can hop right in to this Thursday stand-up comedy workshop at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. You can hop right in, pay the registration fee. Uh, you'll get your Zoom code, and you'll be into class two of this uh, five-session course. Uh, and I'll get you caught up on what you missed on class one. Or, or, or. Or, or, or you can uh you can uh uh go to comedyschools.com you can go to comedyschools.com and um uh sign up for the for get the zoom codes for the free intro june 9th that's th- this coming tuesday this coming tuesday june 9th at 6 p.m i'm doing a live free intro on zoom for my stand-up comedy workshops no need to uh, pay anything for that. No need to uh, do anything except join in. I'll be able to take up to 100 people. Absolutely free. Go to comedyschools.com and get the information to sign up for the free intro this coming Tuesday. Then if you want to move on with us, great. If not, you know, we all had a cool uh, a cool Tuesday. And we did something pro, uh, proactive and productive and positive and creative. Okay? And some of our creative artists have been some of our, our most impassioned. Or some of our creative artists whether it was Dick Gregory as a comic in the 60s or Richard Pryor as a comic in the 70s and 80s or Bob Dylan as a singer in the 60s that through their creativity really truly affected change. If that's what you want to do, you just might want to tell a couple of dick jokes as well. Hold on, I got something going on here with uh, my assistant. Uh, what do you want to tell me? Yes. I just have this piece of paper. You have this piece of paper, okay. I don't know where it came from, though. It says, uh, Popop Pee Okay, all right. Okay, all right. Okay. So, uh, you know, I want to get back to where you're going to put your risk. So I wasn't going to put my risk going down to the state capitol going, open the businesses. And I wasn't going to put my risk doing something, uh, uh, marching for something I totally agree with, which is justice for George Floyd. Okay, so where are you going to put your risk at this point? I put my risk with my family and the people that I love. That's where I'm putting my risk. All right, I stay safe enough and check that everybody else is staying safe enough so that I can see uh, uh, my uh, stepdaughters, for lack of a better term, my grandchildren, my daughter, uh, and soon possibly, uh, hopefully, uh, my brother and his family in California. Where are you going to put your risk? Because if you risk too much and you lose too much, you're not going to be able to help anybody. All right, okay. So uh, let's get to the goofy stuff, shall we? Let's get to the goofy stuff. And the goofy stuff I got for you today are two buttons. That's what I got, two buttons. And this one says, uh, this one says, Cassandra, uh, play by Selma Olson. Cassandra, a play by Selma Olson. Cassandra was a play that I was in in 1982 that played, if you're ever driving down Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood, if you're ever on vacation in L.A., and you go, all right, when we get to the Sunset Strip, but we're here, and you end up on Santa Monica Boulevard, and you look up and you see the West Coast Repertory Theater. I directed a play called Cassandra at the West Coast Repertory. When it looked like I was going to take off as a theater director, and I would have took off as a theater director, but uh, instead I uh, snorted a lot of coke and drank nonstop. Uh, I directed a play there. There was uh, two versions of it, one I directed and one I was in, and it was just a reminder to me that at one time, uh, I'm not going to say that I do things backwards, but I decided to move to Los Angeles to study theater. 
They'd be like moving to New York to study sitcoms. You know, you went to New York to study theater in L.A. to be in television. I did it exactly the opposite. And this is a reminder of a play I did at a place now called the West Coast Repertory. That was, uh, uh, damn it, what was the name of it then? It was named after a Greek guy who owned it. A Greek guy who owned it. And it was right down the street from the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute where I studied acting with a man named Lee Strasberg. If you're ever watching The Godfather 2 and you see Hyman Roth, he was one of the greatest acting coaches of the 20th century. He created the thing that later on was dubbed as method acting. And I sat next to him for almost six months as his class secretary. And I realized I was sitting next to living history, a man who had been involved with the creative, political, and cultural uh, uh, turmoil and uh, uh, epic battles of the 20th century. And it was a hell of a time and a hell of an honor. And West Hollywood in the early 80s was a hell of a place to be. Uh, where I started uh, messing up a little bit, this button right here. This says, I kicked it off at Margarita Jones. That's what that button says. I kicked it off at Margarita Jones. Now, these are little buttons that you got, you know, people print up buttons thinking, well, this will help promote. And it's a little football guy uh, actually uh, uh, drinking. A, he's kicking, but he's drinking a margarita. Okay. Margarita Jones was or is, and I think it was now, a uh, sprawling half block long Mexican restaurant directly across from the Los Angeles Coliseum. And it was a venerable restaurant that had been there for decades. For decades. Right across the LA Coliseum, it's a place where people went and drank uh, after watching, at one time, the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, then later on, the Oakland Raiders. And throughout its history, from the beginning of the 20th century forward, of course, uh, uh, the USC football teams, the University of Southern California. Rose Bowls played there. Super Bowls played there. At one time, when the Los Angeles Dodgers first moved to Los Angeles, they did not have a Dodger Stadium yet, and they played baseball in the L.A. Coliseum, where the largest group of people to ever see a baseball game, over 100,000, um, piled into that stadium to watch the Dodgers. It is still holds the record for the largest uh, live attendance to any baseball game. It was in the late 50s before Dodger Stadium was built. But I worked at Margarita Jones in 1984. And here's how it went. Okay, in 1984, I attended a bar at a place called Mom's Saloon in Brentwood, California, just a couple blocks from where OJ did it. Way before OJ. And it was a speed bar, and I was a fast bartender, and I had a buddy of mine, and we were partners. We always worked the same shifts. And it was like a version of the movie Cocktail because you did all kinds of fancy crap behind the bar. And we got high behind the bar. And we got drunk behind the bar. We met girls behind the bar. And we were, we were uh, uh, I hate the term celebrity bartenders, but before there was such a term, we were that. People would come in just to see us. And one night, two guys came in in 1984 and said to us, you guys are two of the fastest bartenders in L.A. We own Margarita Jones, and the Olympics are coming, and the entire place is going to be swamped be swamped there's gonna be tens of thousands of people down at the coliseum watching the games and we are hiring bartenders and they offered us an insane salary told us we could keep all of our tips and said we're also renting hotel rooms for all of you because there'll be no way to get in and out of there because it'll be a madhouse sounded like a way to make a mini fortune over a couple of weeks over a period of a couple of weeks paying for a hotel room they're gonna pay for our food Pay us more than you would ever pay any bartender ever at that time or even now. Let us keep our tips. The tips sounded astounding. People all over the world, we went to our bosses at Mom's Saloon. They were pissed. 
because they're going, look, you know, we're going to be busy here too. So all right, fine. There's plenty of people that want your shifts. And on the appointed day, the day before the big ceremonies, we even left our cars. I was living in Los Feliz, California, near the Greek theater. We left our cars in our parking lots of our apartments and took a bus all the way down Los Feliz Boulevard, all the way down to uh, USC country, to Margarita Jones, where we sat up and waited for tens of thousands of people to come swamping in, ordering margaritas three at a time and, and burritos and enchiladas. You know, and we, uh, we had Peruvian marching powder so that we were sharp the entire time. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and nobody showed. Because what no one figured in was that the Olympic Committee, uh, the neighbor, a little weird thing. USC is one of the most pre prestigious schools in the nation, but it's near a neighborhood where there is a, uh, a lot of violence or crime, or was at that time. And the people that put together the, uh, the Olympics in 1984 knew that, and nobody was staying downtown. They had m a massive fleet of buses that brought people from Westwood and Brentwood and Malibu and Hollywood and uh, uh, Sherman Oaks and every other uh, uh, part of Los Angeles where they had them in nice hotels, and they bust them down for the games, and then they bust them right out, and Margarita Jones went bust. And by the third or fourth day, they were laying us off, and we were back begging for our shifts back in Brentwood where we were told to go pound sand. And instead of making a lot of money, we went flat, flat broke. And the only thing to do in those days if we went flat broke was to get good and stinking drunk. So I was drunk during the entire Olympics. But that's the story of Margarita Jones. And uh, it's sat like right across the street from where the uh, aviation, there's a plane and stuff, I can't remember. So if you're ever down that way, if Margarita Jones is still there, Remember I told you this story, okay? And picture me as a 29-year-old drunken, uh, coked-out bartender with a cigarette permanently affixed to the side of my mouth, okay, and hands that were the fastest bartending hands in Los Angeles, just kind of standing there going, fuck, we made a mistake. <laughs> the rewards in L.A. are great, but the mistakes can be greater. All right, let's talk about the music I'm going to recommend today. So I got a couple things here. I'm going to recommend this one because uh, everybody loves this album. All right, everybody of my age loves this album. This was an important milestone in uh, our cultural life. And it is, of course, T for the Tillerman by Cat Stevens. T for the Tillerman by Cat Stevens. This album was almost like listening to church hymns to my generation. On this album, you have... Where Do the Children Play, Hard-Headed Woman, Wild World, Sad Lisa, Miles from Nowhere, But I Might Die Tonight, Longer Boats, Into White, On the Road to Find Out, and Father and Son. Now, anybody who was anywhere between the ages of 15 and 30 when this album came out in the early 70s, or in 1970 to be exact, uh remembers this album, remembers those songs, and know what those songs meant. And these songs had a deeper meaning. These songs told us there was something else in the world besides that which we could just touch, taste, see, hear, and feel. That's what this music did. Let me repeat, for those of you that remember, on one album, Where Do the Children Play, Hard-Headed Woman, Wild World, Sad Lisa, Miles From Nowhere, But I Might Die Tonight, Longer Boats, 
into white, which is the only one I don't remember. Uh, on the road to find out father and son and T for the Tillerman. I think I left it out. It's a one minute song. Uh, that's one I don't remember either. Every, every other one of them were part of the important, the important soundtrack of an entire generation's lives. And if you're not familiar with Cat Stevens, just go to YouTube and pull up Where Do the Children Play? Just pull up Where Do the Children Play? Start there. Start with there, okay? And then uh, uh, dig into it deeply. Uh, Kelly Wilson's put up what I think is uh, actually his full name. Steve Dimitri, uh, and I can't pronounce it, Kelly, Jerju. Uh, now, he uh, put out other albums, okay? Uh, he even did a, a weird version of a... a the old Sam Cooke song, Saturday Night. It's another Saturday night, and I ain't got nobody. And then, inexplicably to us, converted to Islam and changed his name. Changed his name to Yusef something. And for us, who were the secular, humanist, agnostic, new age, post-hippie generation, it was almost like someone had betrayed us. We knew very little about Islam. We knew very little about, about being Muslim. And most of us still know very little about it. Most of us don't know the difference between Sunni and Sharia or how it even came about. Okay? But it was like, wow, because we were all anti-religion or at least non-religious. Because you can't be religious and smoke and do and live the life that we lived. Now, oddly enough, many of us did become religious later on in life, okay? But he was the first one to realize, and it made sense after a while, that a man who would write a song like, Where Do the Children Play? I would write a song like, uh, uh, Wild, Wild World, that knew inside there was something more than what you could see, taste, touch, feel, and hear, would be questing himself, and that he would land somewhere. He would land somewhere. And he landed in the world of Islam, which he is a part of to this day. And for years, didn't even, wouldn't record, would not record, wouldn't do interviews, nothing. Became one of the most deeply religious men of, uh, uh, became one of the biggest conversions in, not only in uh, uh, what he believed in, but in the way that he uh, comported himself in, in the entire um, um, counterculture generation. Now, many years later, he started playing again and singing again, and he still goes around and does it, and it's absolutely wonderful. But all that aside, if you don't know Cat Stevens, YouTube, uh, Where Do the Children Play, uh, and YouTube, uh, YouTube Miles from Nowhere, too. But if you start out with uh, Where Do the Children Play, you'll go deeper right away. All right? So, uh, and for those of you that forgot about him, go back and listen to that album again and remember what it made you think and what it made you feel. And uh, even if you were a mud stump and redneck, like I, a long haired redneck, like I was at the time, it made you stop. It made you pause. It made you breathe. It's a wonderful album. This next album is just a fun album. All right. And this was a regional hit. And I don't know how they did outside of the Midwest, but uh, for a while, because of a couple of songs, this band. You guys see that, YouTubers? You see that, my Facebook friends? The Climax Blues Band. With the Stamp album, uh, were a big FM radio hit and toured the Midwest quite a bit. Um, and on this album is Using the Power, Mr. Good Time, uh, Running Out of Time, uh, The Devil Knows, Loosen Up, Spirit Returning Cobra. But the big hit on this, the big hit on this that got played constantly was the song I Am Constant. 
So if you want to YouTube something and hear some great um, uh, early mid seventies, uh, this came out in seventy five. So I'm still going to go with mid seventies um, rock right before the Southern California. Uh, this was they were right at the end of the whole Southern boogie, going to take over the whole world. Leonard Skinner and Marshall Tucker band. Uh, 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 era going into the Southern California uh, Eagles era. Uh, they were one of the in-between bands. And their song, I Am Constant, was just a fun dance tune. As a matter of fact, uh, it, during the time that that song was out, um, I wasn't 21, but I had fake IDs, and I hung out in uh, bars. And uh, bars had gone from being just places that her father said and drank silently to places to party all during that time in the early to mid-'70s. And they started hiring uh, rock bands in places that normally were just quiet places with a jukebox. They put in a uh, rock band uh, and they play Skinner and Marshall Tucker and, and uh, uh, Cream and Credence and they play all that. But uh, a lot of times they'd be playing any local band, playing any bar. And it was hard to get Midwestern boys to dance. The girls wanted to dance. The girls had gotten dance. Well, we're going to dance. Well, I ain't dancing. I'm going to sit here and drink with my friends. But when the song I Am Constant came on, it was one of those songs that everybody ran out on the dance floor and danced to. And if you didn't have anybody to dance with, you frantically ran around going, want to dance, want to dance, want to dance. You know, finding someone who wanted to dance to I Am Constant. The next time I saw a, a song that seemed so easy to dance to that got everybody on the dance floor was uh, uh, 8675309. 8675309. And after that, <coughs> the Macarena. So... Uh, I Am Constant was a huge Midwestern dance tune, okay? And you should Google or YouTube it. You'll get a little taste of a kind of a not first-tier rock music of the mid-'70s, but a wonderful second-tier. They were there with bands like, uh, uh, I don't know, Ario Speedwagon, things like that, okay? All right. Uh, so anyway, two pieces, uh, two bands, uh, an artist, Cat Stevens, reacquaint yourself or acquaint yourself with them, uh, Mike Lawson says, I could do the two-foot stumble. And that was a good thing about I Am Constant. You could kind of just do that stand still and kind of move your move your upper body around thing, which was uh, uh, very good for all of us uh, roofers and bricklayers and factory workers uh, that were all in our late teens, early 20s, and the mid-70s. Cat uh, Stevens and the Climax Blues Band. All right, that's kind of the show for today. I pontificate a little bit earlier. Um, if you tune in the show for something other than that, I apologize. Uh, but I just thought I'd get it out. And I told you about comedy workshops coming up. Oh, this Sunday, there's not a person on here that should not see this Sunday show. Tony Visick presents Sunday Night's Funnier. Okay? All you got to do is go to comedyschools.com. You'll see it. Tony Visick presents Sunday Night's Funnier. Paul Green. Paul Green, along with DJ Payne, Travis Minor, Abhinav Goyle. I'm guaranteeing it'll be a great show. I'm guaranteeing you'll laugh. Okay, live in your living room through the magic of Zoom. Tony Visick presents. I know a lot of you are staring at Zoom all day. You're staring at screens all day. It's driving you nuts. It's driving you nuts. But I think I did the whole YouTube thing with my face obscured. (laughs) I know it's driving you nuts. But if you want to see like something fun on Zoom, tune into one of our shows. Tickets are only 10 bucks uh, and it's 10 bucks. You know, if you got five people with you, all five can watch for 10 bucks. Uh, when you buy a ticket, you're buying three things. You're buying yourself some great entertainment, original entertainment, seeing something fun on your screen instead of this shit that we see now. Um, 
You're buying yourself entertainment, okay? You're helping pay the comics, so we're keeping the economy going in a microscopic way, but we're doing our part, all right? And portions of the money goes to uh, local food pantries in my area, so you're helping feed people, all right? So there's no reason not to buy the ticket this, uh, this Sunday. There's no reason not to check out the free intro June 9th. You can find all of those on ComedySchools.com. You can find me here tomorrow at 2 p.m. where I'll be back with, as Chuck Barris used to say on The Gong Show, more stuff. Okay? For my producer, just happens to be my wife, Shirley Lovisic. For my uh, helper and co-host today, my grandson, who, uh, I just love that kid. Okay, Sullivan Ramirez. <laughs> I, uh, I want to thank you all very much for watching. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. I'm trying to end this, YouTube, but it won't end. There we go. I'll see you, YouTubers, tomorrow. <laughs>